At this time, loved ones, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to our scripture passage this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20 to 25. Today we're beginning a very short series that will span over the next two Sundays. So today and the next following two Sundays wherein Pastor Daniel and myself will be unpacking for us the newly adopted mission statement of our church, and that is that we exist to exalt and experience God together, to equip and encourage God's people, and to engage enthusiastically in God's work. And this morning we'll uh, unpack that first part, exalting and experiencing God together. We find that again in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 20 down to verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. We find, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we heard a sermon from Pastor Daniel, a sermon about a text where Jesus, our Lord Jesus, says that in order to enter into the kingdom of God, we must be like children. But here at the opening of our passage, we find the Apostle Paul saying, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. What's going on here? Is the Apostle Paul trying to correct our Lord Jesus? No, not at all. Paul agrees with Jesus. As Pastor Daniel said last week, childlike faith that Jesus calls us to is not the same as a childish faith. We find that Jesus there is calling us to have humble, open-hearted trust in God the Father, like that of a child trusting in the care of his parents. But Jesus never says that we must think or act like children. God the Father wants his children to grow up in their thinking and in their acting. He wants us to become mature towards perfection, towards conformity to the image of his one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in this text, he clarifies saying, be infants in evil. So with respect to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be mature. So like children who have not yet corrupted themselves in the world by actions of evil, though they still have 
evil within them, born in sin and iniquity, right? But they have not corrupted themselves with great evil in the world. So too, do not corrupt yourselves with evil, is what Paul is saying. Like children, do not. But Paul also says, positively, let your thinking be mature. This trusting disposition of an infant, that is something we need. That is good, that trust disposition. But we must, must not have the immature mind of an infant. We think about it, little babies, they don't know much at all in their infancy. But in a healthy home with caring parents, tending to them, caring for them, these little children are amazing little sponges, and as they listen and interact with their parents and their surroundings, they grow tremendously fast, exponentially. Their mind is growing. But in that home, they need clear and constant communication to grow up. And the more that parents talk and read to their children in a common language that they can soon with time understand, well, then the faster and better their minds will develop. And to have a healthy, mature mind, infants need that clear communication from their parents day in and day out as they experience life. And what Paul is saying is that applies to us in the Christian faith as well. That here we find in this text that as we exalt and experience God together. We do so best in worship when we engage our minds in the clear communication of God's Word. This is how we are to grow in maturity towards perfect love, through the clear communication of God's Word and engaging in that mindfully. And so first we'll look at the command, then the reason behind it, and lastly the goal, the end goal that we'll find in the last two verses. First, the command. Look again at verse 20 at the opening. He says, again, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in your evil. But in your thinking, be mature. What is Paul calling us to here? He's saying that in Christianity, well, Christianity is not a mindless religion. We must not turn our brains off at the door when we come in on Sunday. When you walk through those doors, yes, turn off your smartphone, but don't turn off your smarts. Turn it on. Be engaged with your brain. God wants us, his children, to be mature in thinking. Healthy faith does not stop at the beautiful and simple declaration that Jesus loves me, this I know. We don't stop there. No, healthy faith seeks understanding, more and more understanding of who God is and his love for us. Healthy faith hungers and thirsts for more about God and his gospel. And if you think of this, if someone you know or love, a child, loses their appetite and just doesn't have hunger or thirst, is not hungry and not eating, what is that a sign of? It's a sign that there's something wrong with that child, either mentally or bodily, emotionally, spiritually, something is wrong if there is no appetite there for that person. And the same applies for faith. If you do not hunger and thirst to know more about God, then that indicates that something is wrong with your heart and something is wrong with your faith with respect to God. Because God wants us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And therefore, when we come to worship together on Sunday in our fellowship 
gatherings. We need to wake up our minds and be engaged properly. That means that come Sunday morning, so this morning, our brain should have been well-rested and prepared to engage thoughtfully in the whole service. That means that you should be mindfully engaged in every part of the liturgy, every part of our order of worship. God is not exalted or praised when we're just sitting there and going through the motions of what is happening around us. God wants us to be mindful when we're praying, mindful when we're singing, mindful to those who are preaching or speaking God's Word, reading it, and mindful as well when we're reading responsively God's Word back to each other. He wants us to be engaged mindfully. And some people, they come to church in order to simply feel good about themselves. They want to check off church service on their weekly list to feel good. But those people rarely have their minds engaged in what is happening. And if that is you, if you don't come engaged, ready to receive, well, you cannot expect that the experience will be fruitful for you. If you just go through the motions during the service, mentally checked out, thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch, thinking about where you want to go afterwards in the afternoon, or thinking about the score of the game that's playing that you don't have access to right now, then don't expect that you will receive anything from God if you're tuned out and not mentally engaged. You might make yourself feel good for being religious, but you're tricking yourself if that's the disposition of your heart. We shouldn't go to church to feel better about ourselves. We go to church in order to meet God and experience Him together in worship of Him and seek to be renewed by Him personally through His Word. And we must do that mindfully again. Why? Well, as Paul is showing us here in this passage, God is found and made present through the clear communication of His Word. And we can remember kind of as a word picture that story of the prophet Elijah who sought out the Lord's presence. And there in the cave in Mount Horeb, he didn't find God in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. No, the Lord showed up to him in the low whisper of his word, through his word, declared, clearly presented to him, God makes himself known. And that's why everything that we do together as a church, everything we've done in the past and henceforth, is all about God's word. His word at the center of all that we do. We pray God's word back to him. We sing God's word back to him. We study deeply God's word together in order to speak his word, encouragement, counsel to one another here in this place. Why? Because God is really among those who clearly communicate his word to one another, mindfully engaged. Remember, childlike faith is not the same as a childish faith. God wants us to always trust him as a child, yes, but he also wants us to grow up in our thinking and in our acting. He wants us to be mature children, striving to be more and more like Jesus. Now let's dive in a little bit more into the reason and the context of this passage here. First with this question, this is our second point of reason, the reason. This is the question we'll throw at the text. Why is Paul giving this command to the Corinthians here in this letter? What was happening in their context of their own worship services? 
Well, it seems that their worship services had turned into an incomprehensible chaos. They were speaking tongues, and each of them getting up at different times, and all together speaking in different languages, actual languages, and there was no one there to interpret. They were misusing the gift of tongues. This is really important that when we study the Bible, we find that the gift of tongues was not meant for long-term growth for Christians going into the future. Why? Because tongues were not intended to seek full knowledge of God. It was intended for a very infant-like stage of the church in the apostolic age, the day and age of the apostles. And so we find that the purpose of the gift of tongues was to grow the church not in maturity, but it had two main purposes. The gift of tongues, first of all, showed God's gracious turn to the Gentiles. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, that's all, or that's what was happening there. This great sign that the Spirit of God came down and gave the followers of Jesus in that place the ability to speak in a variety of different languages, tongues, just another term for languages, to speak and declare God's gospel news to the people that were gathered in that place from all different parts of the Middle East. Now, that was the purpose, one of the purposes of giving gift of tongues to the church, so that the gospel will go to the Gentiles, go to the nations, which was God's plan all along. Paul doesn't mention that here, but we find instead he mentions another purpose. And this purpose is largely ignored. We find what he explains here in this passage. The gift of tongues also showed God's turn in judgment against the nation of Israel. And that's what Paul speaks about in verse 21. Look at verse 21. We find that God judged Israel for their rejection of the Son of God, namely Jesus. Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, improved it by his teaching and by his miracles and by his perfect righteous life. How did they receive him? They did not receive him by faith, by submission to who he was and is. Instead of bowing down before him, the religious leaders of that day, they falsely prosecuted Jesus as a blasphemer and a threat to society. And then they demanded that the very king of kings be crucified by the hands of sinners, by the hands of pagan Romans. And so what did the nation of Israel deserve for this rejection of the Messiah that God had long promised to them in the old covenant, in the promises of old? Well, they deserve God's judgment. And we find that in the New Testament, God was demoting the nation of Israel from the status as his holy nation to now a common nation among the rest of the nations of the world. And this demotion of Israel and the judgment that came upon Israel, that was finalized in the year 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, just as Jesus had predicted. And so today we find that the Jewish nation is not God's chosen nation any longer. Rather, God's chosen people and his holy nation is the church, which consists of followers of Jesus from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this doesn't surprise us all that much. We're used to Gentiles being part of the church 
Today, the majority of the church is filled with Gentiles, even here in this place. But this was a dramatic shift in the story of the Bible and for the believers in the first century to grapple with. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying that the gift of tongues was meant as a sign of God's judgment against Israel. That by graciously turning to the Gentiles to speak to them, to declare his promises and grace to them, that God was also in that way turning in judgment against Israel. And the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, he predicted this, which is what Paul refers to in our passage, saying, It is written, By people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And so as the gospel was going forth to the Gentiles, and he was speaking to them in those languages, we find that it was a judgment against Israel. Therefore, as Paul says in verse 22, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, those who have rejected the gospel, namely the nation of Israel. So do you see it? The gift of tongues was a sign that showed God's gracious turn to the Gentiles, and at the same time, his turn in judgment against the nation of Israel. Now, all of this brings us to the conclusion that the gift of tongues was not designed for long-term growth towards maturity for Christians. It was a sign for that transitional period between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so it had a limited usefulness in the church. It was given as a sign during that infant stage of development, but it was not meant to be forever. They were supposed to grow up and out of it and move on to the more excellent gifts that Paul mentions, faith, hope, and love. But Paul, as he's dealing with this actual church there in Corinth, he finds that they had become consumed and enthralled with the gift of tongues. Why? Well, because it was showy. It was showy. It seemed impressive. The nature of the gift seemed to them to reveal God's presence among them. But Paul says the very opposite. It doesn't reveal God's presence among you. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, he says, If therefore the whole congregation comes together and all speak in tongues, that chaos that's incomprehensible, and an outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds? You see? That was the effect that was happening, and Paul is showing them gently here in this passage. There was no interpretation. There was no comprehensible message being declared. It was chaos. And people were coming to the conclusion, these people are crazy, just like the rest of the cults around us in the ancient Greco-Roman worlds. Even if they were saying marvelous things in an actual language, the people could not understand it, and therefore they could not marvel before God himself. And we find that God, our God, is a God of order. He is a God of order, beauty, and truth. And a chaotic, mindless gathering was not a sign that God was with them. No. That's why Paul concludes the section of this chapter in verse 40. Verse 40 of the chapter saying, All things should be done decently and in order. Why? Because the one true God wants his children to grow up in maturity towards faithfulness. What they were doing was unproductive. It was not fruitful. It was actually a barrier to anyone coming in off the streets that might be interested in the Christian movement and this message. It was a barrier to them. It was childish of them. And Paul is gently telling them, you need to grow up. You need to mature in your faith. 
You need to seek to obey God and worship Him in a way that engages your minds through the clear communication of His Word. And so if you look back at the first three verses of this chapter 14, we find that Paul says this, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And here from that verse in particular, we find how Paul is using this term to prophesy. It refers not to foretelling the future, which is how we often think of prophesy. We think, oh, it means telling us what's going to happen in the future. No. Here we find that to prophesy means to communicate clearly God's word in such a way that it builds up the people. It gives a word of encouragement. It gives consolation, comfort to those who are hurting. And in our context today, what does that mean? What does that look like? It looks like God's people studying his word, engaged in his word to clearly then communicate that to one another. That's what Pastor, and D- Pastor Daniel and myself do each week as we come to study God's word and then clearly communicate that to you all. That's what we do when we study God's word together. We're growing in our understanding of God's word so that we can then share that clearly with other people. And what is the end goal? Our third point. What's the end goal of all of this? Why is it better to prophesy and clearly communicate God's word? It's because when the clear and understandable word of God is at the center of our gatherings, then people will experience the presence of God. How so? Look at what Paul says in verse 24 to 25. This is kind of the key passage, the key verses. He says that through the clear communication of God's word, the Holy Spirit does what? Convicts people of their sin, calls them to account for their action, and discloses the secrets of their heart. Think of it in this way. God's word, when it's clearly declared, it turns on the light. Turns the light on in the darkness of people's hearts and in their lives. In Hebrews chapter 4, we hear this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That is the effect of God's word as it comes. It reveals, it exposes, it convicts. How does that work? Well, God's perfect law, His perfect law, His righteous standards, what He demands of us, when that is clearly and rightly explained, it shows us the real state of our souls before the Creator. You might be dressed in your best to convince others that you are a good person, but God's revealed will, His law, it strips us down naked. It strips away the appearance of goodness. And it reveals us as naked before him, exposed before his penetrating eyes. You can fool others, but you cannot fool God. He sees to your very thoughts and intentions of your heart. You are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. You cannot hide from God. And the word of God reveals that we stand as sinners before a holy God. 
when it is clearly declared. But the end goal we find here of communicating God's word is not simply to reveal us as, na- as naked sinners before a God exposed and liable to his judgment, but rather, as we see in this text, it is to draw people in to worship God with us. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 25. The end goal is this, so that people will fall on their face, worship God, and declare, God is really among you. God is really among you. Paul isn't talking about people tripping and falling down on their face literally here. No, he's talking about people becoming so convinced by the majesty of God through the clear presentation of his word that they are willingly falling down in humble devotion before the king of kings because they realize God's word is revealing him as king and that we stand before him in need of his grace. And we realize that he is truly among us through his word. So why? Why should we clearly communicate God's word going forward in our gatherings? So that people will be convicted of their sin, including us. We always need constant conviction of sin to seek the renewal by the Holy Spirit. And also to recognize God's majestic presence among us and that we might worship him with our whole hearts and minds engaged. We want to worship God. We want to exalt and experience him together we do that best when our minds are engaged in the clear communication of his word. And it's very important that we see in the very next chapter, what does Paul go on to say that he used to preach constantly among the churches that he first delivered to the Corinthians? What was his message? Well, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So we see that the law, it exposes us as sinners standing before a holy God, but it is the gospel. It is the gospel that shows us that we can stand before that same holy God, cleansed from all our sins, and clothed in his perfect righteousness as we hide ourselves, not in our religious obedience, no, but in Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his righteousness for us. And so that is what we are going to do going forward, as we've always done in the past, faithfully declare God's word, clearly communicated among us, so that others might declare God is really among you. May that be the case going forward. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, indeed, we seek to exalt and experience you together here in this place going forward, and we ask that by your Spirit you would bring the conviction of sin, that you would expose our hearts through the penetrating power of your law, but also, Lord, that through the power of your gospel, the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that you would clothe us and comfort us with the good news that we can stand before you, not with the righteousness that comes by our own obedience, but a righteousness that comes by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave his life for us. Lord, we ask that going forward uh, that you would be here among us and that others might see and experience you as we have and be grafted into our fellowship and together we might worship you and exalt your holy name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones, let's uh, respond with a song of application.